Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the Nonprofit News Feed, well, we're talking about a strong statement made by PETA with regard to the Kentucky Derby and uh, the lead up there, which uh, Nick, you can you can take us into. Absolutely, George. So we have some sad news coming out of the Kentucky Derby, and that is over the week leading up to the Derby, which is this past weekend, seven horses were put down uh, as a result of injuries in the sport. This comes around calls from organizations like PETA to essentially shut down Churchill Downs at the Kentucky Derby and really take uh, a full stake of what competitive horse racing means for the animals themselves. So Bleacher Report and many other sports organizations have reported these horse deaths leading up to the Derby, which I think might have set a record this year for most attendees, 150,000 people at the Derby. PETA Senior Vice President Kathy Guillermo issued the following statement, quote, Churchill Downs is a killing field. Freezing Point is the latest casualty, quote, that was the name of the horse, quote, he's the second horse to die at the track, making it an appalling seven deaths in advance of the Kentucky Derby, end quote. So while PETA is often criticized for aggressive marketing stunts and extreme points of view, the conditions that lead to these deaths have been roundly criticized in the mainstream sports world. Uh, George, what does this mean for racing? What does this mean for our nonprofit audience? What does it mean when PETA puts out a statement like this? I think it's important for nonprofits to be able to have that voice, you know, think maybe what you will about PETA's tactics for or against. I think this is a an opportune moment for PETA to be having and pushing that conversation. I mean, the truth is, according to, to stats, I mean, I can pull it from, I guess, it, it, it's tough. It's anywhere from 400 to 800 racehorses a year, and it's not totally clear as to the the source cause. But that, I mean, that's, that's a lot of horses, frankly, dying for the sake of of this sport you know something interesting to note is actually the modern pentathlon i'm gonna drop some knowledge here modern pentathlon formerly had horse racing as one of the five elements of the sport was uh in the olympics and was removed for for many reasons but i think one of which certainly was the ethical treatment of, of animals for sport and you know, there, um, it is something that, you know, the, the sports world has that, that conversation around. And I think there are things that can be done and that's kind of what they're pointing to. Cause you know, this is the 149th running of the Kentucky Derby. This is something baked in, you know, tremendous tradition, livelihoods. There's, you know, incredible amounts in, invested in the, the careful treatment of animals. I, I also believe that like the owners of these horses are frustrated that because of silly marketing stuff on the side of like putting, you know, DJ booths next to a stable and then the horses getting spooked by it. Like there clearly there uh, are, are more things that can be done to protect these animals. 
in this sport, you know, not coming down either way, but uh, it's it's important to see that that side of the conversation. Yeah, George, I think that's right. Ethics in sports is something that we actually talk about on this podcast a fair amount. We talked about the NCAA here, uh, about equity and wages in sports, and now we're talking about animals in sports um, and the ethics of that. Uh, but I, I agree with your assessment. We'll see how this evolves the sport if it does. But uh, yeah, I think you make some really good points. All right, I can take us into our next story. And this comes from The Register. And it is that cloud comp computing software company BlackBot has agreed to pay $3 million to the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, for providing misleading disclosures about a 2020 ransomware infection in which crooks, quote, stole more than a million files on around 13,000 of the cloud software's customers' databases. So according to the financial watchdog, BlackBot is going to give the cash, quote, without admitting or denying the regulator's findings on BlackBot itself. Uh, quote, banked $1.1 billion in revenue in 2022, which was actually a $45 million loss. So the financial health of BlackBot doesn't seem to be too hot. So others are saying this is more of a slap on the wrist. George, what does this mean for BlackBot? What does this mean for nonprofit uh, donor security? And a trend we've been following in this space is the consolidation of the nonprofit donor CRM platform software computing space. Um, where does BlackBot fit into that picture? And what should our nonprofit listeners take away from this story? Well, it's interesting because I remember this being a story that I, I think BlackBot was very eager to have not exist in, in the public eye. And it had some coverage, but it was really a wash during a time of a lot of public hacks across a lot of public companies of keeping things safe. And really what mattered was and is, frankly, the timely public disclosure, especially when you're dealing with a public company. And in this, they explained that they didn't disclose this in their quarterly filings in the SEC and omitted this material and then actually came out later and then disclosed it despite the the knowledge that it had been frankly uh, hacked because they very much were aware as they <laughs> paid ransom like that's not something you don't notice it's not like hey well they um I mean, we're talking about a million files right of donor files what's interesting to me is that now this opens up uh, the fact that in California, according to the CCPA, and it's, it, it's California's GDPR stuff, okay? I don't want to get into that too far, but there is a, a lawsuit by 13 separate organizations that is in a class action and could be holding BlackBot accountable for at as much as $750 per, per file that was uh, stolen and not disclosed. And, and so that, that becomes a real number. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, no, uh, I, I'm not big on public math, but $750 times 1 million is, is a good amount of money. And so that could be something that like, oh, is there an existential thing coming? What's more, I happen to know that BlackBot has very intense contracts that 
lock nonprofits in, except that when you look at your contract, if there is, in fact, a moment of non-disclosure of uh, data violation, it nulls that contract. But it's, it's something to pay attention to as well for nonprofits deciding whether or not their platform is, is under this amount of legal scrutiny based on ethical operation under you know, what the SEC has already declared uh, as something that was, in fact, violation. Yeah, George, that's a good summation. George, let's say in the future, you're a nonprofit and your cloud computing, your CRM, your donor software uh, is held for digital ransom. How would you consider communicating that to your donors? What do you do if you're a nonprofit from a communication standpoint? Like at Wholewell, we're all about communicating and building donor trust and that community. What do you need to do as a nonprofit if your donor data uh, gets breached in an instance like this? Well, I want to be very careful here because it, it is very much conditional and subject to law. Like you are under legal obligation to sort of enact the right steps. Those steps broadly involve like stopping the breach, understanding, determining what has been breached and patching that hole. Then you need to work on your communications. You need to be talking with a lawyer. Uh, so, you know, establishing that internally saying like, All right, what is our, uh, you know, liability is a, based on what was stolen. And then you have to immediately, I would recommend getting somebody knowledgeable uh, in that PR realm. Here's a, here's a direct plug to nonprofitist, nonprofit.isd. I would find a uh, crisis comms uh, person to make sure that you are messaging that honestly and timely. The, the timely thing matters quite a bit to you, especially in regards to the CCPA and New York State's shield uh, type of now sort of data expectations of any data that has been stolen. And so there, um, you know, that is, a, that is a priority thing to, to be discussing uh, and enacting. And uh, again, far beyond the amount of time I have here, but be careful. Good reminder, good lesson for us. Of course, a complicated topic, but talk to your lawyer. Uh, we don't give out legal advice. No. All right. This was not legal <laughs> advice. This is not legal advice. We are the furthest thing from advice at nonprofitists and a communication crisis PR expert at nonprofitist. Absolutely. Great plug. Uh, transitioning, this now becomes the seemingly obligatory AI part of the podcast. But we have a story from Fast Company about learning nonprofit Khan Academy uh, beginning to unroll an AI education chatbot. So Khan Academy, of course, is the viral online digital learning platform, and it is rolling out and piloting a version of GPT called Conmigo. And I've seen some demos of the tool, and it's really, really cool. Uh, like students can ask it why it got questions wrong. It can learn based on how students have engaged in, you know, test taking skills and really, really create individualized educational experiences on this platform for students. And Khan Academy seems to think that this could revolutionize how students learn. Uh, it essentially becomes a digitized tutoring service. Of course, questions around GPT and student use uh, bring in some questions uh, around safety. Um, although Khan Academy seems to be very much on top of this, that 
um, chats are monitored in real time by a real person. So there seems to be some uh, interpersonal uh, safety and redundancy built into this. But George, I think this is just one of the many ways in which AI has applications. Um, here for students, there's been so much talk about plagiarizing and cheating on homework, but what if AI can help students learn? And if anything, we've seen education st st statistics coming out of the pandemic that show that uh, school-age students are falling behind and the pandemic really accelerated that, that drop of uh, reading, math, and, and other ability levels. George, can this be a solution moving forward for individualized education? If it's not part of your education strategy, you should remove the word education from your directive. Like full stop. I, I think maybe I'm taking an extreme tack on this, but this is not a don't pay attention to the wizard behind the curtain moment anymore. This is a let's have hard conversations and truths about how we have to remake from, frankly, a lot of our approaches to how we're educating our young people of how you live in a world where this tool also exists. Because there's no genie back in the bottle moment here. I like seeing Khan Academy, a leader in education, saying, let's figure this out. And in a blog post, founder Saul Khan wrote, when GPT-4 is carefully, and I like that word, carefully adapted to a learning environment like ours, it has enormous potential and can guide students as they progress through courses and ask them questions like a tutor would. AI can assist teachers with administrative tasks, which saves them valuable time so they can focus on what's more important, their students. And I think this is, this is the type of work that needs to start being done because unstructured, what makes me nervous, unstructured uh, student engagement with chatbots concerns me. I don't think it's the path that you should be taking. And frankly, when, um, you know, mold grows in the dark. And so if your uh, approach and policy is one of, of ignorance of this tool, uh, you're doing a disservice. Also, interestingly, like this is one of those uh, areas where there's a lot of changes happening on the education space, especially as it touches the economy. We saw Chegg, a leading homework helping company, take a 40% plus haircut as they had to disclose that GPT-4 was effectively eviscerating the use of their tool because students were simply going to GPT-4, ChatGPT, for the type of homework solutions and help and assistance that Chegg previously uh, provided. So uh, I, I feel like this is the, the start of the conversation and I like seeing this, this type of conscious adoption because frankly, it's, it's not as easy as saying like, oh, here you go, go just chat with this thing. Um, we're building custom applications on top of this. There are front end use cases that I am simply uncomfortable with having GPT manage and handle even with the types of guardrails that can be put in place. They are not perfect. And so in any situation where you're dealing with, especially young people in crisis or crisis adjacent conversation, uh, I don't like it. I do like it quite a bit though, with guided, supervised, direct access. And I think we're going to rapidly approach uh, a moment where we're considering access to a effective GPT tool 
uh, equivalent to access to the internet in terms of educational rights that should be afforded to young people. George, I think that's absolutely the the right tack there. No one uh, can afford to sit back and just watch this kind of <laughs> uh, walk by. Uh, this is going to be, I think, as revolutionary as social media was, as the internet was, as smartphones were to how we interact and use technology in our daily lives. And that includes students and classrooms. So I think this is an important kind of harbinger uh, for what's to come in probably the not too distant future as Khan Academy is actively piloting this program. George, I want to turn us to an article that you wrote and along also the, <laughs> the, the line of AI. Here. <laughs> a little self-dealing. Never hurt anybody. It's We're disclosing it. Show. I do what I want to. Absolutely. I mean, unlike, unlike uh, some of our Supreme Court justices, we disclose that this article is written mm -hmm. by Whole Whale. What chat first search means for organic and ad brand traffic for nonprofits. So chat first search is essentially you have a search engine, but instead of just giving you results, essentially you get a summary of the results or the actual result of the results. Uh, if you're lucky, you'll get citations in there. But essentially, what does this do? You have now chat features usurping organic or potentially ad grant results in platforms like Google, et cetera. George, what does this mean for uh, nonprofits with a strong organic website presence, nonprofits with the ad grant, et cetera? The irony that I consider myself a decent marketer, but gave this article the title of what chat first search means for organic and ad grant traffic for nonprofits does not escape me when I should have titled this article, why your organic traffic and ad grant may burn up in an amazing flame of destruction powered by chat first, right? Like this topic has been keeping me up at night. I, that's, I literally mean that. I, I have been thinking about it and I've spent quite some time considering this. Ultimately, what I'm seeing is firsthand examples of how when I go to chat first search on Bing or perplexity.ai that I can look at the same type of search result that currently drives traffic to whole whale. Things like, should my nonprofit use AI tools? We index for that quite highly, may I add. Now, when I search for that on Google, good old classic, there I am, happy blue link, somewhere in the top three. Now, when I search for that inside of the Bing chat or perplexity, I'm suddenly a footnote. I'm footnote number three or four and a sentence from my site, from our site shows up. So at that point, I'm gonna get significantly less traffic. There's two buckets of traffic. When people search, essentially, there's a third, but I'll park that. Information or transactional. Am I buying a thing or am I learning a thing? And in the learning category, that is going to be eviscerated by the fact that chat can summarize topics from search and hand it on a silver platter to the person asking the question. And the opportunity, frankly, is that you begin to understand how to show up in that chat result. Like it is different. There's a bit more of a winner take all. And there's an open playing field for long tail 
conversation and opinion-based pieces that may begin to rise a lot more uh, on these topics. It's things that we are actively working on, working on sort of ways of auditing this risk and planning it out. Uh, but make no mistake, chat first search and experiences are going to happen faster than any other technology adoption that we have seen in recent history. We remember mobile first being this movement and this question of like, oh, when will mobile first like overtake desktop? And it took decades for that to happen. This is going to take years. More specifically, I think this happens inside of three years. Uh, that means at some point, over half of the searches will be done in a chat first experience. Uh, the writing is on the wall. The adoption is there. And so what does that also mean for ad grants is in question as well as Google goes through an existential crisis and remaking of what previously was their money printer, which was the search ads. It is the most amazing money printer ever. And now they have to remake what that looks like. And I think that also may be a remaking of what the ad grants value is. So if those are your traffic sources, I'd consider reading this article and maybe taking this a touch more seriously. This, this, <laughs> this part of you brought to you by a public service announcement of what keeps me up at night. Yeah, this has a lot of implications uh, for our, our work for nonprofits. Uh, George, I think you laid it out well. We will link to the full article because I think yeah. it does really do a great job of explaining everything in the show notes. But this is this could be the most important thing for nonprofits in the immediate term when it comes to AI beyond just kind of using it within your systems is how, you know, there are nonprofits, George, we work with in which 70% of their revenue, donation revenue is coming in via organic search. Mm -hmm. um, this is not something you want to play around with. So uh, take a take a read. All right, George, I think we need a feel good story now. We owe it. We owe it to the people. We owe it to the people. All right. Uh, this one comes from Forbes, and this is about Ben and Jerry's co-founders getting fully baked with a new nonprofit cannabis company. So <laughs> uh, Ben and Jerry's is uh, releasing a cannabis company nonprofit. And the idea is uh, within Vermont, this company would devolve profit back to uh, black entrepreneurs, particularly in the cannabis space, and also work to provide uh, advocacy efforts uh, to ameliorate the effects of incarceration on folks in jail for uh, previous cannabis charges. So it seems like we have another social impact enterprise in the works from the folks that brought to you the quite activist, quite frankly, uh, Ben & Jerry's brand. I think it's owned by Unilever now, but the brand itself is is still quite quite activist so george what's your what's your take on this i don't know i'm i'm searching for a way not to sort of laugh that you know cookies and cream and fish food the number one thing sometimes sought by folks under the uh, influence of cannabis now is full circle and helping those people with uh with regard to wrongful incarceration uh or at least i would say at this point as we look back on the fact the amount of humans that were incarcerated because of uh, because of cannabis and now is open to the public market. And in fact, again, we're, we're seeing certain communities being left behind and in, in, in that transition in the economy uh, for the same reasons that incarcerated them. I'm glad that ice cream is playing a positive role in social justice there. 
without a doubt. George, do you have a favorite Ben and Jerry's flavor? Ah, uh, I'm like, I'm like the worst because I'm like gluten free, lactose free, happiness free, dairy free. Mm -hmm. And so I look at ice cream as like a, a long begun, like forgotten memory. So some sort of sad sorbet, I'd suppose. That is absolutely fair. <laughs> <laughs> the worst. All right. But I do have a serious. No, it's not a serious. I have a question for you, Nick. So uh -huh. why why didn't the Invisible Man donate to the clothing drive? I don't know. You're tempted to say you didn't have any clothes. The truth, Nick, he couldn't see himself doing it. That's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's what you get for making it to the end. That's on you. Take care. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 